So this one's entitled How Law Firm Leaders Can Prepare for Changes to the Economy, Office Life and the Tax Landscape. So the, the Professional Practices Alliance is, for those who don't know, a, a collaboration of independent firms, all with different specialisms, but we all have a focus on looking after professional practices. So I was looking back, because it's been a year now, and the very first webinar um, that we did was a year ago, and it was to do with firefighting to survive the crisis that we were just entering into. And now a year on, it looks like things have changed enormously. We've sort of got used to the new temporary normal and looking at how things have changed. So we thought at that point that it might just be a few months and not over a year that we'd be working like this. I think the early months was a bit of a sort of panic and everybody was uh, all hands on deck and we can do this and just focusing on helping clients and listening to their concerns and getting on with things. And this is where the topics for all these webinars came from. It feels as though back then we thought it was just going to be a few months away and now it looks like, well, I'm starting to get that sort of um, imminent back to school feeling where I feel like I need to sort of go and find my pencil case and get ready to actually get back to the office properly. So this one is looking ahead at medium term, I suppose, whatever you define medium term as and changes to the economy and office life and, and tax landscape. I'm delighted to welcome our speakers. The speakers we have are James Campbell from Cushman and Wakefield. Uh, James is an international partner advising on London leasing market and occupational strategies, particularly with regard to the changing needs of occupiers since the, since the pandemic hit us. Uh, we have Beth Hale from CM Murray. She's a partner and employment lawyer advising various sectors, but with a specialism in advising law firms and other professional practices. We have Alistair McQuater, who is a partner of mine, heads up our business tax team at Buzzacott and advises on a huge variety of UK and international uh, businesses, but with a focus on professional practices and, and also Buzzacott's own structure and, and tax planning. And we are hoping that um, Andrew Hosking from Quantuma will join us in a moment. Um, he's the managing director and restructuring specialist for Quantuma, uh, looks after a huge variety of businesses and has seen the, you know, the highs and lows of what's happened during the pandemic and advises um, several high profile law firms as well. So let's start. Well, one of the biggest upheavals that we've seen since we've all been working remotely and dealing with this pandemic is the move to home working. And now I suppose we're all starting to think about how we're going to get everybody back into the office again. Um, this is partly why we've got James on the call. James, your, your firm's conducted surveys and produced reports on workplace changes. Can you talk to us about how you think things are changing in the medium term and by all means define medium term, but particularly in the context of the big cities like, like London? Yeah, th thank you, Claire. Um, I think the first thing to say is um, I think everyone's view on what medium term is probably quite different. Um, you know, I, I think we look at it probably starting over the next sort of 12 months onwards, um, because that for us is actually the key critical time at the moment for the real estate industry um, and for occupiers. Um, you mentioned surveys that, that we undertake and uh, uh, we've been doing or undertaking a survey called Experience Per Square Foot, which uh, as of the last um, time that we did it, and we're, we're currently going through our third iteration of it, we interviewed 64,000 or surveyed 64,000 people and have um, over 3 million data points. And it's very much looking at the difference between pre-lockdown and lockdown and how people you know, feel in their work environment um, and the differences that they've seen. And that's really given us a really good insight to what we can expect for the future of the office and the future of how people will use their space, where they will use it, how often they will use it. Um, and it's given us some really good insights. And I think the biggest thing that we've taken from this, and this is a huge positive, I think, for, for everyone, is that because people had to end up working from home, people now feel trusted to carry out their work in a different environment. You know, you don't get people being checked up. People haven't got a problem. And that is a huge shift that we're seeing from the, the manager to employee sort of basis. And that's something that, that is going to stand us in really good stead for us becoming more efficient and more flexible in how we do our work. But the thing we've got to remember is there's a huge difference between the people and their experiences during lockdown, which will affect how they react and how desperate they are to come back into the office. And uh, when, when we look at our survey, um, there's a real shift in the difference between 
the millennials in their shared flats in London with no outside space and their view on, on lockdown compared with the, uh, the baby boomers. And this is a hugely generalization um, in their, uh, you know, their house in Sussex or Surrey with a couple of acres and their study overlooking it and actually thinking, Do you know, what? this is great because I get an hour and a half back, which I don't have to commute and I can go for a walk with the dogs in the morning. So there was a there was a real shift early on between between the two. However, this is this has changed over the last certainly three or four months, but was changing already during the lockdown as people became a little bit tired um, and and I think probably exhausted by the situation. Um, and the common themes that we are starting to see from this survey as to why people want to return to the office, which I think will very much be reflected in how people use the office going forward, um, is well-being, learning, connecting to their colleagues, and a company culture as critical things as why the office is so important. And just to give you a, a real life example on the company culture piece, um, I'm doing a deal um, sort of in the Marlebone Paddington area at the moment where I'm acting for a developer and the occupier that is trying to take the whole building, they, they currently have an excellent work from home policy. They're a fast growing uh, financial business. And their CEO said, we can actually work from home. It works for us. You know, productivity hasn't actually been such an issue. And we can just about maintain our culture, but we can't grow our culture. And what's a business without a culture that doesn't evolve and, and start to actually provide more and more benefit to ourselves and to our clients? And I thought that was a really good way of summing up one of the most important things. Um, and, and I think lockdown three is probably... Um, been a, a godsend in terms of the real estate market, not, not clearly all the bad things that have happened with it, um, loss of life, life etc., um, and mental health issues. But the desire to return to the office um, has significantly um, picked up. Um, and there, there are just two other themes that I want to, to, to talk on in this it is, you know, what, what are people looking for in terms of their real estate uh, in actual the physical buildings? And the second thing is, um, how do they look at using it? So the first one is, is that the trend that we're seeing over the last 12 months, and I think probably what we'll continue to see going forward, and this is predominantly because I think, you know, we are, real estate as an industry is, is pretty slow on the uptake in terms of trends, et cetera, but this is squeezed probably the next 10 years worth of change into one year. So it's actually a hugely exciting time. Um, and as part And as part of that, um, I think probably what we started to see is that occupiers are willing to pay more money for the best space and the best buildings, rather than actually finding themselves in a situation um, where, where they're in secondary and tertiary space. And actually, the lawyers have been some of the best examples of this since lockdown has started in saying, we want to be in the best buildings and the best locations with the likes of Travis Smith, Latham Watkins, Baker Mac, Covingtons, etc., um, so, so that's the general theme, but we're seeing that across um, across the multiple sectors as well. And, and I think the one thing that we are seeing is that, um, and this goes back to how people want to use their workspace, is I think the next six months before we go into that medium term, it, is we're going to be really seeing a lot of people doing a lot of workplace strategy, and this is at the larger scale. Um, and, and the predominant reason is, is that people just don't know how they want to use their office right now. Um, and, and that could be, you know, from, you know, what, how much space we need, how we're going to use it in terms of what sort of different functions we have. And I think that really means that the landscape for 2021 from a real estate perspective and certainly from from my perspective. And when I when I certainly look at our fee forecast for this year, I think this pretty much sums it up. It's going to be another tough year, 2021. But we're really confident that for the best buildings, best locations, um, and with additional amenity, and that's going to be absolute key, is that piece on amenity, that it's very much going to bounce back in 2022. And just the, the last thing I, I just want to leave with you um, before we move on to someone else or take questions is that um, we have a, when we talk to our workplace um, strategy team, um, that, and this is very early days, is they're trying to look at how people occupied space pre-COVID and the sorts of themes that they're starting to see now in terms of how people are intending to occupy space post-COVID. And, and roughly the split in terms of um, 
fixed desks and quiet rooms as one section, collaborative space as another, and support and well-being was at 60% fixed desks, 30% or quiet rooms, 30% collaborative, um, and 10% um, support and well-being. There's trends that they're starting to see, although very early days, coming out of their workplace strategy they're doing with a, with a real broad spectrum of occupiers, is that is now looking more like 30% fixed desks and quiet rooms, 50% collaborative space, and 20% on support and well-being. Now, that's not to say that they might be taking slightly less space as well, but that's the percentage of what we're starting to see as the trend as how people may want to occupy their space as we come out of lockdown. Lovely, James, thanks. That, those percentages are interesting. I don't know how they compare to what we have at Buzzacott, but I don't think we have 50% of the space for collaboration, but uh, I know that's something that's definitely on our on our agenda, I think we're going to be reconfiguring our space that already are, are doing so. We, we don't either. And, and, and I think that's, you know, clearly really, we, we, we sometimes find ourselves in that situation where we should be leading by example, um, especially when you're a real estate practice. Um, yeah, how do you but, define collaboration, James, may I ask? Uh, it can, it can, Andrew, it can, welcome. <laughs> morning, Andrew. Um, morning. It, it, it can be, it can be most, it can be anything. It can be, you know, communal breakout areas, it, it can be anything where people are brought together. And that can be with clients, it can be um, with other members of staff, it, it can be actually, you know, if you think about, you know, actually having a, a, a great tea point breakout area, which isn't just a tea point breakout area. So it's, it's a really broad spectrum of things. But I think the real shift is the move away from fixed desks towards collaboration. Although, my concern is is the fact that when you and, and and i know andrew we discussed this before is that my concern is is that when you find a situation when people are doing say we're going to come back <coughs> into the office and i think the one thing i didn't say is that the change that has happened i think is going to mean that people um want a balance between working from home and working in the office there are very few yeah. people who are going to say i want to work from home permanently and there are very few people who say i want to work from the office permanently but so let's say the average ends up being three days in the office. Uh, it sounds nice, doesn't it? Do Tuesday to Wednesday and get a nice long weekend. Um, but, but the reality is, is that if you've got everyone in your company working Tuesday to Wednesday because no one wants to come in on a, on a Friday or a Monday, then, then you actually find yourself in a situation where you've got to have additional fixed desks and spaces for people to work. And I think that's going to be one of the huge problems in the real estate industry is that people are going to over simplify how they use their real estate going forwards but the reality is is in 12 24 months when we get to what is going to be the new norm they're going to say well actually we probably needed more space and that's why when we see a lot of and, and i use the law firms as an example a lot of the law firms that have committed recently are looking to commit to space that they're, they're looking at getting lots of good flexibility in their space take so they can either take more space or drop more space as part of their contractual right in their leases. I was just going to follow on from what James is saying about that sort of flexible space and the sort of flexibility around the, the sort of flexible working people working part from, partly from home and partly from the, partly in the office. I think there's been a real kind of um, there's a lot of talk about, you know, our law, firm, the law firms are reducing their space. They're not going to need so much space because they're going to be less people in the office. But actually, and I think it's likely that certainly for a period, there'll be less people in the office at one time. But I don't think that necessarily means that, that you will need less space because um, hot desking is gonna be an issue. Partly it's historically always been an issue. Law firms tried it in the sort of nineties, early noughties. Um, most of them then moved away from it. No one likes it. It, it's like that. It, there's there's research to suggest that it's not very good for engagement, for um, for mental well-being, for feeling really engaged in your job, and actually it, it contributes to sort of low job satisfaction. There's also a COVID risk in hot desking. If you've got one person sitting at a, at a desk one day and then another person coming in and sitting at the same desk the next day, current government guidance suggests that 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 would not be acceptable from a COVID safe perspective. So that that. That, that sort of pure hot desking I think is not going to be something that is embraced widely and so then do you actually need less space if everyone you know if everyone in fact needs a desk and I think you're absolutely right James that that flexibility is going to be key that as we work out what happens and how it looks going forward we're, we're, that will become clearer. 
we just had a couple of questions in already actually which james i'll just put these to you quickly um somebody has asked about um have you asked in your survey or has, has your survey also covered commuting because you can control your work environment but not necessarily how you get there and how that affects people on their you know their return to work and the second thing which i'm which you sort of covered anyway is is the extent to which businesses are wanting flexibility. They want the ability to densify and de-densify and be able to get more flexibility over how they use their space. Is that something you can comment on? Yeah, I, I think the, so, the, so the first one, yes, it, 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 you know, very, very valid point. Um, our, our, our survey does look at um, the impact on commuting time. Um, right now, I can't remember the exact output from it, um, but, but I think what we're seeing as a trend is um, in terms of desire for buildings is um, proximity to key um, office, sorry, proximity to key transport hubs that have multiple um, ways of coming into the office. Um, so, so it's not just about tubes. So it's going to be about the fact that you've got overland as well. And, 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 and really it's about those hubs. And, and I you know, personally think from a going forward is that those hubs are going to become more and more valuable in terms of you know a real estate per square foot basis in terms of what people are willing to pay for it because of the proximity to them and i think sorry what, Claire, what was the second point about de-densification about how you use the space right, wasn't right. it yeah it's, it's flexibility which i know you, you've talked about yeah. you and i've talked about it the ability for, for all businesses to be able to have a i suppose have a landlord who's going to allow them to be flexible and and extend the space and yeah so, so i think i think there are two things there the, there's one how you're able to um, extend your space within your own private demise um, and part of that is going to be I think we are going to see a period of de-densification for some of the things that Beth actually said about you know proximity to people that being said real estate decisions are 10 year 10 year plays as a general rule rather than 12 month plays and I think we've got to you know we've got to look to the medium term and beyond what's going to happen over the next 12 months because we know there are going to be problems we know it's not going to be perfect we know that there's going to be issues with as Andrew was talking uh, about get, going up and down lifts and how many people you can get in the mix etc but but i think we've got to look look beyond that um i think one of the things and the bco are currently looking at this um as in the british council for offices as in what their standard recommendation for fresh air into a building is is in liters per second and that's about to change and the number of changes of air to deal with those sorts of things but i think in terms of what we're going to see and and this is where buildings of real scale um are i think going to be preferred to smaller assets a lot of the time because if you're delivering a huge building as a landlord you can put a auditorium you can put a um a co-working but flex you can put all the amenity in there you can put you know a food market whatever it may be but things that an occupier can flex in and out of uh, and, and i and i use the auditorium as a as a really good one and, and sort of questions to yourselves on, on on the call is um do you have an auditorium as part of your um your own auditorium or base building your fit out and if the answer to that is yes um one you're probably going to be a reasonably sized law firm but 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 secondly is how many um days a year do you fully use it a far more pragmatic way around that is having an auditorium or event space that you can you know pay for when you use um as long as you can actually get hold of it and i think that's the sort of um, sort of you know that flex piece in terms of just not only sort of giving back space and taking more space but paying for services as and when you need them is going to be absolutely critical and, and that's why the largest buildings which have as much amenity as possible are going to be the most successful because I believe our occupier rep team believe and our clients that we're speaking to believe that there is going to be a significant move um, towards amenity in buildings to encourage people, one, to be efficient in terms of how they use space, but two, to encourage people back into the office. I was just thinking, um, it's, that's a very good um, commentary, but the practical aspects that we've seen, which bearing in mind, we've got to build up the staff confidence, is I've noticed our regional offices, um, people are very comfortable still under a proper rotor previously going in where they can drive, lock the car up, go into the office, they know what's there. In London, as you rightly just said, the tube is a major issue. And so London has actually been, our London office has been slightly more paralyzed and we have um, delegated more out to our regional offices, which have been less affected by COVID. And I just therefore wonder, I, I hear you say about scale, but I wonder whether the, the demand 
will still be there for a major London hub or whether it will be augmented by a smaller London hub and maybe a greater regional presence. Yeah, that's so I think that's a, a, a really, it's a really good, it's a really good point, Andrew. And I think probably if you're asking me this question, um, probably nine, ten months ago, there was a lot of chat about um, sort of spoken hub and, and about having a centre and then having lots of regionals and and even some of the practices out there and the companies thought about trying to do it. The overall theme that we're seeing is it doesn't work um, right. because um, it, it works right now because it works for people who you know are talking about the next 12 months but it's not going to work long time because it doesn't you know it doesn't deal with the well-being learning connection to colleagues and company culture issue which is an over sort of arching theme at the moment so so I think it's very valid but not at the, the right at this moment and talking to um, I was talking to our group president um, who or group, he's basically CEO for the company a guy called John Forrester um, at Christmas time um, and, and we're talking because he has a very sort of global view on everything um which is actually quite pleasant i think at the moment because you're not worrying about one particular market um it is uh, he was saying the two parts which of um the world which are the two most important to our business um are london and new york and they're both paralyzed by exactly what you said andrew which is how you get into those cities um but but i think that's a very short-term problem and when we look out at the medium, I think that will come out of that. Okay, um, let's move on to some financial uh, points. By the way, we have quite a few questions coming in on the property side of things. So we'll try to get them in the course of this, uh, get them in the course of this webinar. But if we don't, then I'll pass them on to James and he can uh, reply outside this, this webinar if we don't have time. So just before we move away entirely from the uh, property side of things, Beth, I just wonder whether you can comment fairly briefly on, on um, how we've had to adapt to supervising and monitoring quality control because right now we are all spaced out all over the place and there are inevitably some issues with with monitoring you know how, how staff are doing and where things are going wrong and just general supervision yeah i think that's absolutely right i think we all had to very suddenly adapt to um supervising um performance management you know, dealing with difficult situations remotely on things like zoom on teams on whatever platform you use um and i think there's one issue when everybody is doing the same thing, when everybody's working from home and you're all using this kind of platform for communication. And I think, generally speaking, businesses have adapted pretty well. Um, and you are able, you know, what, what you've had to, you've had to sort of look at monitoring people, but not too close monitoring. I think there are some industries in which they've really got into the sort of like, I, I call it spyware slightly reluctantly, but actually just sort of having really collaborative working, really creative ways of collaborative working. So they have kind of, screens open all the time where they're so it's basically like they're in working together in, a, in one space I, I don't think that works brilliantly in a law firm context or in a professional practice context because you're doing different different work for different people and with different people during during a particular day so I don't think having one person sort of sitting on your screen collaborating all day works in the same way but I think we have adapted ways of you know having regular drop-ins having regular team meetings online um having you know surgeries with senior people having technical meetings i think we've really adapted well to that i think the new challenge for for law firms is going to be when we move to this whatever it looks like this kind of hybrid model where some people are working from home some people are in the office um how is that going to work in terms of how you manage someone if you're you know if, <clears throat> if the junior person is in the office and the partner's at home or, or vice versa how is that going to work what kind of space do you need going back to the property issue in order to manage that and, and what kind of tech do you need you're going to have to you know there's going to have to be really good video conferencing tech in, in all meeting rooms um, I think it's it's really going to it's going to be a whole new challenge that I think firms ought to be thinking about now how to supervise people how to how to monitor what people are doing and I think James referred the first thing he said was about trust in people working from home and I think that is a real cultural shift that, that we've seen as well that people do now have trust in their staff to work from home but I think that as the as that hybrid model develops, I think that will there will be a real shift around how we manage that. I think <clears throat> remote supervision, I, th I mean, I think one thing to say about supervision is as lawyers, we have regulatory obligations to provide proper supervision to juniors. All, you know, with that, that's a fundamental tenet of the SRA regime. So um, it's 
absolutely vital that we carry on doing it. And I think remote supervision requires additional skills and sometimes additional time talking things, talking people through things remotely can take additional time. Whereas if you are sat in the office with them, you can just sit down, put a document, you know, sit next to each other, put a document together. I think that that also will change, that direct supervision will change when we're back in the office because you may not be able to sit so close to one another, you won't be able to kind of put your heads together over a document. I think there are all sorts of issues of just ways that we have taken for granted, ways of working that we have taken for granted for years that will have to change. Um, and I think that that hybrid model is going to be particularly difficult um, for, for us to manage and for, for law firms to manage. Okay. Thanks, Beth. Um, now let's move on to some of the financial aspects. Um, we'll, we'll bring in Alistair in a second because as a week ago we had the Chancellor's budget and Alistair loves nothing more than to talk about uh, tax changes and, and budgets and it's his favourite subject. So we'll bring him in in just a moment. But Andrew, I just wondered, you see so many businesses and you see the, the best and worst of them. Do you think you could give us a sort of um, an update of what you've seen over the last 12 months, the, the winners and losers, and, and then we'll move on from that to having to looking ahead? Well, I think, I think in terms of the winners and losers, funny enough, I just did a press um, briefing on that. The winners and losers, uh, uh, notwithstanding this seminar, are clearly uh, internet companies, logistics companies, and um, and uh, uh, those in the sector that are able to be flexible, though the big losers are predominantly oil, agri-trade, and of course, retail. And then finally, property investment, because I think, um, as James rightly said, I don't think you'll be seeing that golden bricks. I don't think you'll be seeing 25-year leases. I think the impact on this has been substantial. For me, if one were to look at the, um, the adaptability that law firms and, and others have shown over the last 12 months, actually, it's been in some ways a surprise. I think a lot of them have done far better than I thought. Um, they are self-consuming. Uh, I always I always say it's, um, it's an awful expression, so I hope necrosis almost, where we are feeding of what we have previously um, um, brought in. But I think the reality of, you know, billings and work in progress and new work wind will begin to bite in 2021. What I mean by that, is that billings have probably been stronger than most law firms thought last year. The work in progress being placed on the file isn't, or will, I can assure you, will not be at the same rate that it, that it was. And then finally, above all else, the new client wins are not going to be there. A, there's not going to be necessarily the litigation spend that there was, although there may well be on you know, insurances and the like in terms of business interruption. But um, it, you know, it is impacting on uh, the professional services sector on new work wins. And I think when one considers that, you know, a lot of law firms um, yeah, and, and indeed architects and indeed accountants are involved in the construction industry, which I will see a major uh, slowdown on um, predominantly because I think there will be surplus office space already there rather than uh, new build outs. I think that's one aspect, the, the, um, the setup uh, financially, the cost of setting uh, or adapting, as James said, will also impact. I do understand what we say about hot desking. Um, I, I have never been one for having lots of officers, uh, meeting rooms, yes, but officers in premises. But equally, I'm also um, cognizant that hot desking, where people are crammed together, there will not be that confidence there anymore. And also, ironically enough, uh, I also see the way the ICO is reacting in terms of data and general data, um, you know, when you've got almost call center type operations, you know, you're going to hear of data breaches, which is another thing. And, you know, the last thing financially, if we were to look at the fact that, you know, we've seen changes to legislation, we've seen the ability to defer liabilities, we've seen the reestablishment of preferential creditors, which, um, whilst I'm not saying for one minute, that will impact on, on um, you know, our live clients here, what it will do is it will impact on bank lending because the bank security will not be, the security available to banks to underpin many of the law firms will not be there that it was. So I do see um, enhancement in terms of partner capital loans. Uh, and then finally, and above all else, I, I really do think you're going to see a substantial uh, risk um, costs. So to put into context, they, there is a lovely law firm I've known many, many years uh, two principals, um, never had any claims, smashing little business, does about a million a year. They're both ready to retire. Um, the PI insurance has um, 
vacillated between 17 and 20,000 pounds a year. Um, this year, 93,000 um, pounds. The runoff costs 300,000 um, when they do a, um, a solvent uh, pass to another law firm. That is prohibitive, you know, the, the, and, and they don't have, they've not had any claims. Now, you know, there was a question which is uh, very well made about uh, by Beth in terms of supervision. And, you know, equally, accountants are as accountable as, pardon the double pun, as um, lawyers are with the SRA. But in terms of risk, um, and I, I, I sit on our three partner risk committee, we do see uh, a far more inherent risk from people working from home all the time. And I think James is right. We need to get them back into the office, not full time, three times a week. Because, you know, simply put, uh, a client can ring you direct, okay, and you will be put on the spot to give some an answers. You are not minded on a telephone to say, thank you, may I, now I've heard the question, may I come back to you in half an hour because you're conscious of that uh, potential client may go and bring someone else up. So you will put a finger in the air and you will deliver your advice. Whereas if you're in the office, firstly, invariably your PAs will field the call so that you'll know someone's on the line. And secondly, um, the younger partners, um, uh, and I count myself as the geriatric older partner because of my white hair, they invariably stand up, they walk around and say, have you come across this situation before? What are the risks of it? And as a consequence, your ability to be able to um, educate, inform and supervise is always there. That is missing. And we have seen a, um, there is no claims, but we have seen a threefold uh, potential risk issues, which fortunately we've had to reinforce with three line whips to say, you must not provide advice on areas that you do not have experience of unless you have verified it with the following senior partners. That's how we're managing it. But that's, again, takes further time of the day. And I am sure that all the participants on here, in terms of working from home, you know, there was a joke, you know, we might go in for two days a week and we'll all have a long weekend. I have found that I cannot wait for the office to reopen. Not because I want to work five times a week in the office, but I cannot wait for the demarcation lines to be re-established so that when you leave the office, you, uh, you may take one call on the train home, but you do not get home and then have a plethora of calls coming in till midnight. There are no demarcation lines now. There are no demarcations for the, for the times of the weekday. There are no demarcation lines for the weekend. And that also provides a, a, a further risk. So these are the key areas, I think, financially which are going to uh, bite. And so what do I see? I see a uh, reduction in office space where we can. I can see a reduction in staff, whether that's law firms don't take on the same level of trainees, or whether they even do a small back office redundancy program. And I see, um, I see some tough times for the next year, unquestionably, as the economy is unfrozen, because at the moment it is effectively cryogenically frozen by government un underpins. Yes. I mean, one of the things that I think we all notice from these sorts of webinars, the big thing we miss is that when the webinar is over, everybody is well effectively kicked off this Zoom call and there's no opportunity to have a coffee and chat and all the things that, that we do that generates work and, you know, we get to know each other better. I mean, that's something that you you just don't realise until you're stuck at home doing them that you miss so much. So, yes, I agree. And the yeah. between work and home life is just is very blurred these days. Um, I want to move on to talking about um, the extent to which there might be a bounce back. I mean, I imagine there's got to be one at some point, but how how big is it going to be? How strong is it going to be? I wonder whether, can we bring in Alistair at this point, um, talking about bounce back and also, what Alistair, do you want to start with your comments, your take on the Chancellor's budget, um, and especially in relation to law firms and how you know that might help or, or hinder? In, in terms of helping and hindering law firms, professional practices, I, you know, I don't think there's a great deal beyond we're all reliant on our clients, which everybody's kind of touched on. We, we need busy clients so that so that we um, we can achieve. So, you know, what Andrew was saying about about the future kind of broadly, it makes sense to me. Um, but but in, 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 in terms of the budget, you know, we'd had we'd had months of speculation, kites being flown 
out of Whitehall about what might or might not happen. Um, and in the end, I, I think not a huge amount did happen. We we're all very pleased not to see a capital gains tax change, apart from the corporate finance teams who've been working flat out to try and get deals done before the end of February, um, who are now wondering why they were doing it. But um, but the rumours have already started, I think, so that you know we'll be building up to a, a transaction rush before the autumn statement, I guess. Um, you know, the Chancellor's been clear that we've got to pay for this and we're not going to borrow. Um, and, and so tax rises have to have to come. Um, and, you know, I think he's, he's stuck with the tax triple lock, so no rate increases. But it's the first time I've actually heard a Chancellor be explicit that when he freezes allowances and reliefs, that is actually a tax rise. It's happened in the past many times, but to actually have a Chancellor have the courage to stand up and say it was slightly refreshing. Um, it, it felt like quite a, a, a politically savvy budget, you know, not a lot that anybody could really complain about, but whether it actually gave a great deal, uh, I'm not in, in, entirely sure. Um, corporation tax increase um, was had become expected uh, and pushes into what the middle range of the uh, of the G G20. So we've gone away from being very low tax to just kind of mid range, um, which which probably makes sense. And there doesn't seem to be too much kind of howling and squealing about about that. Um, the super deduction for for companies for for large companies and and those you know manufacturing and so on should be very good news. Um, but at the lower end of the scale, you know we have. Uh, constant debate about employed versus self-employed and the use of personal companies, family companies, and, and whether the tax treatment is fair. Um, we've had a number of um, tax measures over the years which have encouraged people to go into small private companies to incorporate their businesses. The super deduction is just another one of those at the bottom end of the scale. It's not available unless you're a corporation taxpayer. So we're at the small end probably exacerbating a problem which exists um, and which which came to the fore with the support measures that if you were employed you had furlough the self-employed had um, the self-employed scheme but those who paid themselves through dividends really had nothing probably rightly they didn't pay national insurance and that was the other end of the the stick but um, the super deduction probably encourages that behavior at the bottom end so not not hugely relevant for law firms, but I think I think we'll 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 see it. Um, the reviews of the enterprise management incentive and the R and D regimes are going to produce work for accountants and, and for lawyers, I suspect. Um, particularly as uh, I think there are questions about whether EMI is going to be tightened, and therefore you know there'll be more advice needed in in setting up the the the, the schemes. Um, and one area for investigations, litigation types um, practices is, is going to be the revenues work on fraud, the, the COVID uh, support measure fraud regime, the, the revenue are putting huge amounts of money into, into that. We're already seeing clients or prospects come to us. Fortunately, none of our clients have had to talk to us about it, but we've had prospective clients come and talk to us about you know, we may have a problem and there are going to be more and more of, of that. So that's going to be an area of litigation, I guess. Um, although I think on the grapevine, what we're hearing is that the revenue are, are interested. If there's been a problem, they just want their money back. They're not necessarily looking to prosecute at the moment, but whether that will persist. We're, we're, One we're, thing, um, Alistair, yeah. just to add to what you just said there, which um, I am aware that the revenue are considering putting out to possibly tender, I'm sure it will probably be a big four, on a sample audit analysis of um, furlough schemes whereby they are, um, there is talk that they would be paid um, to send in accountants to do a quick check on hard drives and other matters just to see where companies have claimed furlough, whether there have been email activities, because such is their concern about the abuse on the furlough scheme. And you know, you are right, they do not have the resources to do it. So there's something that is looking to be subcontracted potentially out, which is 
which is, you know, um, in line with what you're saying. I don't think they will. They are at capacity, that's HMRC. I don't think they will do it, but I think it is very high up on their agenda, as you rightly say. So. Absolutely, and we're all going to see it on due diligence as well. <laughs> um, you know, if, if transactions, it's going to be something we're all going to have to have a, a, a look at when we're advising clients. So, you know, th there's, a, there's a range of, of change. Uh, tax, tax triple lock, as I said, maintained. But that doesn't mean that the base won't expand. And you know, there seems to be more and more talk about expansion of national insurance. Whether there's the political will to do that, I don't. I, you know, who knows? Um, but and then, you know, we have the Brexit impact as well, which is the the add-on that's been slightly under the under the carpet. Um, but when you combine tax rate changes or anxiety about possible tax rate changes. And the impact of Brexit, we're, we're, we're certainly seeing business move to Europe, um, you know, warehouse distribution type businesses that would or are, would be or are in, in the UK are, are beginning to move because it's just not, it's too difficult to do business. Uh, people not selling to the EU that did. So there's, there's, there's a move there, which is gonna have a, an impact on tax takes, which is, is not helpful as well as employment which again is, is, is unhelpful. Um, and, you know, I think we are beginning to see private individuals begin to talk about migration as a piece of tax planning again, which we haven't had for a long time with, with low rates of capital gains tax. But if, if, if there's a risk of increase, which I think is one of the things that's likely to be part of consultation that's announced in a couple of weeks time, you know, that, that, could, that could have an impact. So those are the kind of things I think, I think we're, we're, we're seeing um, in terms of what uh, the uptide is going to be like. I think Andrew probably has a better, better take on that because he, he, you know, he mentioned we've had 10 years of being told there are hundreds of zombie businesses from the, the financial crash. Well, if they were zombie before, presumably they're super zombie now. Um, and when are the banks going to start pulling the plug? Um, I think that's that's a, an Andrew question, probably rather than for me. Andrew. I can answer that. That will be that will be when um, HMRC crack, start cracking down on furloughs because the banks then will feel that there will not be a criticism if they then start to action things. Interesting enough, you're already seeing some banks doing set off on credit balances to some of the furlough loans because of some of the concern fiscally on the businesses. I mean, Alistair, I thought that was a very good summary. Um, if I may just add, so I was speaking to a um, the number two economist of a, not the clearing bank, but of one of the big investment banks. And he said it was a, um, he said it was a poker budget. That is to say, he was talking about what may, what is likely to happen, but he doesn't want to implement it yet because predominantly ours was the first big potential budget that could have come up um, towards the end, we hope, of the pandemic. Um, such would have been the um, impact they felt that if he had been broadly saying how badly things may need to rise to pay this off, uh, bearing in mind Brexit and the global markets where everyone has had to borrow, you know, stratospheric amounts of money, and the UK would say this is how we're going to go about it, um, they felt that they would have seen a major migration of corporates before. What we are seeing at this moment is we are seeing everybody sitting on the trigger, every corporate, EU, US, UK have had to borrow huge amounts of money. Therefore, the ability to address that is absolutely key from the IMF and the credit ratings. So we need to be seen to say we are going to deal with the accumulated debt over this you know, awful pandemic crisis. What we can't do is show our cards at this moment, because until such time as the US and even the EU suggest how they're going to deal with it, we could be passing them a substantial competitive advantage by announcing how things would happen immediately. So I think you know next year's budget will be brutal because next year's budget will address how um, the debt is going to be tackled over a period of time, but it will be probably in line with the feelings we'll have picked up from how the EU um, uh, and the US are likely to address their own difficulties. And so that's why he made noises, but it was clear he was loath to start something quite heavy at this stage on the basis you could have seen a, a real impact on, on how the UK will emerge.
by corporates now, as you rightly say, doing strategic planning in, in other um, forums around the world. And that's why I think it was in some ways a sort of benign, slight nodding the head. We're not going to do anything just yet. But let's be clear, we are going to have to do something about it so that, you know, IMF is assured that we're going to tackle it, but we're not going to tell them how because we don't want to see large corporates leaving the UK. Yeah, I think that I think that makes perfect sense. We have uh, a couple of questions. I wonder whether I can just because we've got just under ten minutes left. Um, James, there's a couple of questions that come in uh, that have come in for you. One is to do with the you mentioned about the um, air system and getting clean air into buildings. Um, does that mean landlords will need to actually replace systems? So, and are tenants likely to see that cost, or is it only about new installations? Uh, re really good point. Um, so the, the, the comment that I made was the BCO guidance, um, which relates to um, you know, developments, refurbishments, new buildings, um, and the, the benchmarking that is expected. Um, in terms of um, filtration and existing, I mean, it, very much it's one of those things where um, it, it, the first thing is it depends on who's responsible for your kit in the building. Um, it depends on the, the level of your, you know, whether your um, the service charge covers the um, the above ceiling stuff, e.g., your fan coils, etc., um, uh, or whether it's your responsibility. But but I but either way, you end up paying for it in some way because you're either paying for your service charge or you're paying for um, for, for maintaining it and replacing it yourself. Um, I think you know we start we're going to start to see. Um, various conversations about, you know, if you can do something for us, we are, sorry, we are seeing various conversations about um, if you can do something for us, what can we do for you? You know, a mixture of, you know, if we take a breakout, what capex can you put into the building? If we extend our lease, all these sorts of things are ongoing discussions about making sure that you get the best out of it. I mean, I think the reality is, is though, there becomes a point when in a life cycle of a building where, um, you know, if you've got, I don't know, two or three years left on your lease and the building's 20, 25 years old, there's no, there's no point in spending the money on the building because you're not going to get the, the benefit of it for that short period of time. So the, the, the answer in short is you, you'll end up paying for it because that's the way it is unless you've got a, unless you've got a leverage or a tool to enable you to have a conversation with your landlord's about how you do it and then the next one is is the reality is, is is how important is that what's the existing provision within your building and and do you need to upgrade it thanks james there's another one for you um there uh, says we're a boutique law firm who broke their lease in january and took space in an uh in upmarket serviced offices what is your view on surfaced serviced offices um, encompassing many of the key points you've already mentioned. So yes, the, the serviced office option, what's your view on that? So, so I think that um, WeWork is, uh, was um, you know, ahead of its time, an, off an office as a service. It, it just got greedy. It, it just got, you know, it just wanted to, to grow too quickly. It wanted to beat up all its competitors and, and basically maneuver them out of the market by just having total dominance undercutting them putting the others out of business and then slowly ri rising its prices um, i think the reality is is that you know real estate and office as a service is, is here to stay um, and depending on which provider you're with you'll start to get the you know, benefits of lots of the amenity I, I i think that you know clearly i think it's a you know for smaller businesses that um you don't want the hassle can't make you know don't know that exactly how their business planning is going you know I don't know whether they're going to be 10 or 20 people in two years time. I think it, you know, it's, it's a, it's for some of them, it's a no brainer. I mean, you pay for that premium for that flexibility, but, but in terms of making long-term real estate decisions and getting it wrong, it's completely the right thing to do. Um, I think there's a huge difference in terms of um, the different levels of providers out there in terms of, you know, their service levels. And that's really key is their service levels um to the nature and the quality they fit out and the additional amenity um the one thing i would say is that um if you if anyone is thinking about serviced offices apart from the fact we can help you um is uh um we um i would say go go for one of the larger providers for, for a couple of reasons one 
um, you're more likely to um, not have any problems because you know we're paying landlords, etc., and you're paying rent, but the, the provider's not paying the landlord, as we've seen um, quite a few times over the last uh, 12 months. Uh, but also, if you get scale, it means you've got membership, which means you can touch down anywhere. So you know, if you if you're a member of WeWork, IWG, although I'm not a huge fan of the way that they behave, um, the office group, etc. The ones with scale across London, it means that if you've got a, a service centre in, I don't know, let's say Moorgate, um, you can touch down in their office in 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 Mayfair, and and I think that's a real a real advantage to to businesses um, at the moment. And I would, Claire, I would just say, I, I'm, I'm, if there are more questions, I'm, I'm happy to stay on for five, ten minutes after the end of this call rather than fielding them separately. Thank you. OK, there, there is one for Beth quickly. If I pose it to you quickly, Beth, if mm. you don't have time to, you may, may want to think about it. I don't know. Um, it says, are there, do you have any thoughts about work allocation in a hybrid working environment? I think it, I, I, I think that's a really good question. And I think it is an issue that there will be a... a sort of knee-jerk temptation to say I will give the the work that's just come into the person who's sitting here next to me in the office and to and, and that's always been the concern about people who you know about people working from home um is that the that sort of out of sight out of mind I think it's something to be really really conscious of and that you know people where you have agreed to a hybrid working um system where people some people are working from home and some people are working in the office you need to make sure you're dealing with that properly and not preferring the people in the office to for, for work allocation I think it's a it's a really live issue um, and I think it's going to give rise to lots of disputes probably in the future because I think you know it, it's so easy to just go who'll do this work oh here's someone and you know not the person who is not currently in your line of sight out of the office and that's difficult and of course, that, that is actually going to benefit some people, isn't it? Because it's going to benefit some people. Yeah. And I think people, you know, I think people will start to see the benefit of being in the office and, and, and that, you know, having that face to face contact with your colleagues is, is a benefit in a lot of ways. And always just also just sort of linking on to that. I think um, the flexible working and working from home has traditionally been such a gendered issue. And I think if we can take one positive from from this whole scenario, I think going forward, flexible working will become so much more the norm that there won't be that gender issue anymore. That that working from home or working flexibly, working part time or however however the flexible working works, will no longer be seen as a kind of demonstration of lack of commitment or whatever it has been seen in the past. And I think that that sort of gender divide on flexible working is really hopefully going to fall away. Um, and I think that, that it will become just much more the norm and everybody will be doing it for different reasons. Beth, just to add to your point, I think actually also there's the other flip to your being in office. Some, some people just get loaded up with work because they're the ones that get seen. So there's actually a negative connotation from it. In, in Absolutely. As much as yeah, yeah. It, it, go, it goes both ways. And I, and I know how our office works is when someone's got something he's doing, they look down, they look down the row of desks, mm. see who's there and they say, I need this doing by this time. And it's, and it's not particularly healthy. So it goes both ways. Yeah. And I think as, 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 man, as sort of senior managers in a, in a team, what you have, you have to be really, you know, keep the work allocation systems going so that you're not allocating work in that way. Um, because there's also an issue around people, you know, around work allocation in terms of sort of people who have having favorites and, you know, people not being able to improve because they're not given work because they're not rated. And then, you know, that's all, you know, which is nothing to do with the pandemic, but still a, a, a long-term issue in law firms. 